Welcome to Nochi's Talk. Once again, we are your hosts, Walter and Nathan. And like two pieces of bacon, we're both sizzling in this heat wave. So, if you feel like the weather's getting the best of you, just sit down, open a beer, and listen to our podcast. And there is actually a good side to having an empty fridge. You know, I never thought I'd find myself all curled up inside an empty one and recording a podcast. <laughs> well, we certainly seem to be witnessing a change in climate. Yeah, actually, the worst part is that I still haven't bought my summer clothes, even though it's already July. Uh, I did make an attempt at the convenient recourse to quick online shopping. So thanks globalization for that. But uh, I have noticed actually an increase in import tariffs here in Europe. And this leads to a trend we have been seeing in recent years where constant squabbles and tra on trade and tariffs have been prevalent even among long-time partners like the U.S. and Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think this is having something to do with the price increase. But I think today the most important focus would be on China. And there's been a lot of news lately in the past months about trade relations with the so-called workshop of the world. Yeah, that's true. I think specifically we can look at the recent headlines. So in Europe, at least, there was the mm -hmm. so-called freeze of a monumental trade deal between the EU and China. Yeah, the European Parliament took an almost unanimous decision to uh, postpone this deal or the ratification of the deal uh, that was signed last December by EU leaders, including Merkel in Germany, Macron in France, and of course, our favorite uh Ursula van der Leyen, yep. the commissioner. Um, but this was a huge diplomatic 180, uh, given the signing. Uh, and I think this has to do a lot with the recent human rights situation in China. It's easy to think that uh, the EU is reluctant to trade with a regime that practices systematic ethnic injustice. Talking about America here? No, no, no. We're talking about China. Hmm. So what is it then that we're missing out on now that the deal with China is effectively frozen? And more importantly, actually, how does it affect my acquiring the cheap pair of summer shorts? Well, uh, this deal has actually been in the works since 2013. And like I said, it was only signed last December. So it's been in the works for a long time. And uh, it's, it's quite significant investment for all parties. In a lot of ways, it's been about both opening up the Chinese and European markets to one another, strengthening ties. Because of course, there's always been pretty substantial restrictions in the EU market protecting local producers from cheap foreign goods. So yes, if this deal goes through, you could get deeper shorts. And then like us in the US, you could enjoy so many made in China tags. But uh, the other components to this deal Uh, might be even more important than the cheaper products. For instance, uh, an ease on mutual investment and uh, as well as uh, opening up of mobility. So we could expect even more tourism and cultural exchange between the EU and China. And most importantly, more business investors. But I think one of the most unique components of this deal will be the EU unlocking uh, what you might call a new ability. And that would be for European companies to open up branches within China. In the past, this was hardly possible because you needed a local partner each time. Now, this is interesting uh, for me, at least, because it feeds into this growing rivalry between the U.S. and China. Uh, this deal would, in effect, give China and the U. a special and stronger relationship while keeping the U.S. on the outside looking in, feeling alone and sad. 
So the US and China are kind of like two divorced parents who are fighting over the little kid's affection so that they determine the custody. Uh, they're screaming at each other, I want to be the custodian of Europe. <laughs> we all want to be the custodian of Europe. So given the potential ramifications of this agreement, I'm surprised we haven't heard more about this in the news. But then again, there are some obvious downsides and that might explain why this deal hasn't been publicized to such a great extent. But considering the deal has been frozen, something must have come up to offset the balance and ultimately uh, postpone it. And this is a certainly a setback for European trade with China and it affects many sectors. But I think the question that China would then be asking the EU is what is significantly so wrong and so suddenly about Chinese practices that this deal has to be frozen and placed on the shelf by the EU? Hmm. Well, it's not hard to imagine why this whole deal was somewhat controversial. In terms of transatlantic diplomacy, for instance, this entails a distancing from traditional Western partnerships, like with the US, as I mentioned, but also there's ethical uh, concerns. Even before the recent crisis with the Uyghurs, uh, there's also environmental concerns. There's uh, many issues of transparency and so-called good practices. And these amounted to the reason why we had tariffs in the first place and why they were so high. But despite these criticisms themselves, they did not seem enough to stop the negotiations. I mean, the deal was signed while the West knew full well about the ongoing human rights violations against the Uyghurs. So it wasn't a problem exactly. in December. But at least this agreement was tenuous. It was, uh, it was um, easily compromised. And that is exactly what happened in the end, uh, through a sort of collective Western criticism of China that's grown up around authoritarianism. There's been a trading of sanctions, um, specifically over the Uyghur treatment. Uh, first, the EU sanctioned several Chinese uh, officials who were related to this uh, issue. And then in return, China sanctioned a number of European members of parliament. So what we see here is uh, the safeguarding of certain values, which are proclaimed by the liberal side, in the face of an encroaching authoritarianism. So diplomatically speaking, there has to be some inevitable tension. Yeah, and I, and I think even adding to that, the line in the sand has become even more visible uh, recently, especially in terms of power groupings, but also, as you say, with regard to values and principles. It's just interesting to see how quickly this narrative can shift from one of cooperation to one of uh, condemnation towards China. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the political tension escalates when the West not only recognizes the rising ambition of China, let's say, but at the same time doesn't want to admit that a so-called authoritarian state can be a global power uh, on an equal level, particularly when uh, we're looking at relations with developing countries, they want a, a good example, uh, liberal democracy. I see. So uh, if we consider it to be an illegitimate moral authority mm -hmm. when we're talking about China, at least within the view of this uh, liberal consensus of the West, then China, China not only becomes a bad example for developing countries, but it also undermines the West the, and its narrative that you should be a liberal democracy in order to prosper. I mean, since the end of the Soviet Union, this has been pretty much the truth. Mm. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I think um, 
when China is recognized as a problematic global partner uh, due to reasons, for instance, with the Uyghurs or with the Hong Kong um, uh, riots, not only is there the, this resignation that no, China will never liberalize or never see the light and become like us, there's the additional creeping realization that China is actually the global opposition. And so more and more easily, it is identified as a threat to the system, maybe not directly in, uh, in terms of hard power geopolitics at this point, but definitely with regard to values and principles. So we can say that there is this uh, clear split between uh, liberal democracy on one side and uh, an authoritarian, deliberative democracy. Mm -hmm. I would say then that the difference between the two primarily concerns uh, liberal democracy's inclusion of uh, civil and political liberties, which mm -hmm. one does not really find uh, on the other side. And this is an important point. And I know that what I'm, what I'm about to say uh, may seem counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but when it comes to embracing uh, economic liberties, there are huge similarities still in these two opposing camps. So there is the spirit of uh, entrepreneurialism, there is this uh, free market and uh, uh, property rights, and uh, that basically there are individuals who are free to negotiate uh, the terms of the trade. Huh. Well, hold on, though, because there's clearly differences um, between between China and, uh, well, the Western liberal system. I mean, look at uh, government centralization, for instance, or uh, the importance of party connections, uh, yeah. state corporatism, state capitalism, intervention, and so on. But not too different from Western society, where everything is still dependent on connections mm -hmm. and there's still this culture of networking. Money is always interested in maintaining a status quo. And the system thrives on there being no form of revolution whatsoever. So, for example, uh, first of all, if we look at the boycott culture that we have, the idea is that one can respond to political issues with certain sanctions placed on trade. And this already demonstrates how interlinked politics and economy are. Uh, we don't expect a CEO uh, of a big corporation to have radical political opinions. We all know that to get a job for the simple uh, average citizen, uh, they still need to simply shut up and not make any political, politically sensitive statements. And that's how they guarantee their profession. So... The point is that one has to still choose whether to embrace economic freedom or else venture into this, uh, let's say, radical exploration of political mm -hmm. ideas. So my point is that the idea that you can have both kinds of liberties, uh, it is a fantasy that we have in liberal democracies, but it's hard for us to see that from the inside simply mm -hmm. because uh, political liberty it's not about what you are allowed to do. Uh, people in any state, in any country, in any system, everybody has certain freedoms. They, are, they all have things that they are allowed to do. So what defines how actually politically free the person is, is when it comes to the consequences that they would face once they try to act outside what is already granted. So it's about the consequences. Uh, here I will uh, quote... Uh, a uh, slightly controversial philosopher, many people know Slavoj Žižek, and he says that uh, very famously, we feel free because we lack the very language to articulate our unfreedom. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, one big difference 
difference still remains between uh, the US and Western societies and the Chinese one. So I'm not saying that they're the same. Uh, the difference is that individuals still have the opportunity uh, in the West to choose one of the two freedoms. So you can choose to be overtly political, but then probably you decidedly reduce your employability, or you can just become a status quo bureaucrat. But we still have that choice, whereas the Chinese government made that choice for everyone in favor of economic liberty. Well, I think it's that very realization, though, um, of a differing approach to liberty that now puts the West in a position where they need to come up with a unified ideological alternative, both to this brand of authoritarianism seen in China, but still preserving the idea of liberty in both the political and economic senses they want to retain at home and propagate abroad. Well, uh, I, first of all, I don't think that the term ideology here does justice in describing what's actually going on. And to try and understand this, we could uh, make a few steps back and take a look at the historical rise of China to this position of power that it has today. So uh, let's start particularly from China's entering the global market. All right. So we could look at when China joined the World Trade Organization back in 2001. Um, I think this... Uh, is a point marking the end of a self-sufficient or autarkic approach to trade and production in China. So uh, at this point, we can say we can see that uh, China has entered this uh, community, uh, which is built on some principles, right? Which is the principle of this uh, liberal integrationist position, which means that uh, trade is supposed to bring independent states closer together and interdependent. So. Uh, there is this free competition and a free market, and it brings the best of what each has to offer and makes us all more efficient. However, there is a slight limitation to this. Uh, I think that uh, it doesn't simply become some uh, organic system, but actually there has to be more successful um, parties. So interdependence actually evolves into a dependence on a leader. Uh, and what in political science we would call the, the hegemon. So there is this trickling of the domination by uh, one party or a, a small number of parties and uh, their power trickles uh, into the these international institutions. So you mean that there would be one agent within the system that uh, rules the game or creates the rules of the game? I guess, <clears throat> uh, for instance, we could look at... Uh, what you could call the uncontested U.S. hegemonic privilege um, that we've seen since the fall of the Soviet Union. But that's exactly what's now being uh, met with Chinese rivalry. Yes. Uh, so this is, in essence, a contest for the status of hegemon. But China's been playing within a set of established rules under American guidance for all this time. So through that, they must have met with such a great deal of success that now they are the uh, well, primary trading partner mm -hmm. and so on. But it's exactly at this point where China becomes to contest the leading role, uh, but within the same game is what you're saying. And uh, that's precisely so. So it played this game. And so now the, the only way or the best strategy for, for America and the West to oppose this uh, Chinese rise to power is to articulate it in a moral language. So we have to say, oh, China is performing unfair practices. 
So it, whether or not China plays by the rules is certainly debatable. It is. But what is certain is that it's not playing by the rules the, as the U.S. understands them or wants to understand them. Exactly. I mean, we can look at morality on uh, labor conditions, which suddenly became very important, right, with this case of the Uyghurs. But uh, we, we've known about sweatshops. We've known about precarious work for a long time. Since I was a child, I knew about these things and things seem to be going on just fine. Uh, the same when it comes to Tibet. It's an old story that uh, is not really anything interesting anymore, but uh, we somehow thought that we could ignore it. So this seems to be something that we can tolerate as long as it's in some third world country we can condescendingly look down on. Uh, and it becomes only a problem when the developed country starts to implement it. Hmm. So this return to morality can actually deceive us into thinking that there is an ideological divide between, I don't know, the free world and the authoritarian world. It, it becomes very simple to understand that way, but it uh, makes us uh, uh, lose a lot of things, a lot of information. And this split is actually overemphasized in order to force uh, other states uh, to pick sides in this uh, global trade dispute. So. What I would say is that uh, the Chinese side and the Western side led by the U.S., uh, they are so much part of the same ideology, in fact, that the U.S. needs to react against China precisely because China exposes this obscure side of the free market that we're talking about, the things that we want to ignore. And this exposure does not worry China because its society, the way it functions, is already built on a morality which is meant to justify being a global workshop. So China poses the question, therefore, to liberal democracies. Uh, why can't the developed world also implement authoritarianism? And the West is, in this case, uh, forced to see the sausage being made, and it must deny the symptom. Symptoms are, for example, then like uh, sweatshops, uh, uh, yeah. poverty, uh, uh, environmental uh, uh, abuses, pollution, degradation, and mm -hmm. things like that, right? Yeah, yeah, precisely. And uh, for this reason, uh, the U.S. and the West, it wants to send China to the naughty corner <laughs> simply for bringing us to the awareness that these things have been existing all this time. And I'm sure China is uh, looking at the U.S. and asking, I thought that's why you liked us. We <laughs> precisely. were to give you cheap products. <laughs> precisely. So I think it's important, therefore, uh, to make this point that both China and the U.S. are products of the same free global market ideology. So they were fulfilling different roles which were necessary for this thing to keep on function, this machine. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. has its own fair share of precarious practices, even domestically, but they are somehow accepted or tolerated within this moral scheme simply because it was normalized by the U.S.'s leadership. But uh, China's different means of exploitation threatens the same moral leadership of the U.S., and it is why it is therefore considered to be a strategic threat. And so the U.S. has to say to China, stay as you are, or else be developed and uh, employ our ways of doing things. And then, of course, we will find another workshop somewhere in some other part of the world. And China refuses this choice and it simply goes ahead. And it is because of this that the U.S. suddenly is retreating from the same open world market that it had always promoted. 
Uh, yeah, and I think a good example of this retreat could be when we saw the Trump administration refuse to participate in the World Trade Organization. And now, I mean, this is funny considering how uh, the U.S. encouraged and was enthusiastic to get China to join in the first place. Actually, here's uh, a clip of Bill Clinton showing just how enthusiastic he can be for something other than secretaries. It does deny its citizens fundamental rights of free speech and religious expression. It does define its interests in the world and sometimes in ways that are dramatically at odds from our own. But the question is not whether we approve or disapprove of China's practices. The question is, what's the smartest thing to do to improve these practices? I believe the choice between economic rights and human rights, between economic security and national security, is a false one. In other words, we must continue to defend our interests and our ideals with candor and consistency. But we can't do that by isolating China from the very forces most likely to change it. Doing so would be a gift to the hardliners in China's government who don't want their country to be part of the world. So here we can see that the World Trade Organization is precisely an instrument of this uh, liberal integration on which the U.S. is now changing its opinion, uh, whereas China is benefiting by embracing the same rules that the U.S. Uh, and the West had been advocating for the past decade. Mm. But uh, here we can go back again. When China is recognized as a strategic threat to this reigning hegemony or raging he hegemon, there is... Uh, a whole lot that can be interpreted as threatening in their actions and initiatives. For instance, let's look at the Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, started in 2013 and has entailed hundreds of billions of dollars in investment. Uh, this is a project which uh, seeks to connect China to the world to integrate them economically. Uh, nominally, this project is based off the legacy of the so-called Silk Road, a, a land road through Central Asia connecting to Europe. Uh, but uh, at the same time, this has also been a, a means of extending the influence of China uh, to developing countries and to the West and Europe. Uh, and there's been several ways they've done this. Uh, most notoriously have been what has been called uh, debt traps, where um, uh, money is lent at a, either a rate or at an amount that is uh, unreasonable for the country to pay back. And then uh, through that, uh, China is able to gain uh, leverage, political leverage. Um, mm -hmm. Also, it facilitates uh, the same kind of bilateral relations, which uh, increase China's ability to uh, control or influence. Now, uh, this isn't limited, like I said, to uh, developing countries. This is also within a European context. Uh, you can see initiatives like uh, 17 plus one, which specifically involve Central and Eastern European countries, even within the EU itself. And uh, perhaps a good example of this, though, uh, is the recognition of how divisive this uh, Chinese influence can be when last month Lithuania withdrew from this program. Uh, and I think this also shows the sort of changing attitude within the West. Um, it is becoming more hostile. So what we see here is precisely China's game. So its strategy is to undermine the West by forcing it to choose between political and economic liberties, but this time in the explicit and open sphere, 
because so far the West has always chosen the economy implicitly and due to which, ironically, it could afford these uh, localized domestic political liberties. For example, if we look at foreign cheap labor, which we have spoken about, uh, it allows us to enjoy the luxury of having concentrated resources internally, which uh, actually allow us to take care of our disadvantaged. And one might say that uh, even animal pets in Europe have uh, more rights than some humans in other parts of the world. So you can say that uh, in the West, uh, we are at the top of this uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the difficulty that we face is that uh, our political liberties are only a direct result of our position in this economic system. Uh -huh. And uh, it's not something that can be enjoyed by the whole world. And uh, cheap labor is at the same time tolerated as being some form of uh, unfortunate circumstance in some faraway country whom we cannot really impose on, precisely due to the tenet of sovereignty, which is uh, an ideological product of the same liberal free market between independent sovereign state actors. But mm -hmm. now, uh, China calls our bluff, and uh, we have to decide, do we give in to economic liberties, or do we actually resist in the name of this uh, fantasy of political liberty? And it is hard to guess, actually, which choice would be made, and uh, whatever the choice would be, there will be grim outcomes. So the best that is always hoped for is status quo. And uh, the hope would be that China changes its way of doing things, uh, so which would mean it continues hiding the symptom in the way that we want it to be hidden, and then transposing this symptom to some uh, faraway land once again. So uh, as we can see now, the West, which is led by the US and China, have converging strategies as to how to deny the symptom. And uh, they compete as to who among them, therefore, can enjoy this power of exceptionalism that the U.S. is very well known for. So due to China's growing power uh, that it holds within this ideology of free trade among sovereign states, we may very well see a good portion of the world actually taking its side. And I think um, in realizing that China is a factor that will continue to be significant or as a response to that, you can look at the G7 summit that just happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, when, what this added to the developing relations uh, of the West and China. So while Chinese investment programs have often been viewed with apprehension in the past, at the G7, you see probably what is the most clear and overt rebuff of Chinese so-called imperialism. And at the same time, you have uh, China being framed as the competitor, not just in terms of individual nations like the US, but vis-a-vis -vis the liberal West in general. Um, another interesting uh, product of these negotiation was the uh, Build Back Better World program, which is pretty directly a challenge to China's initiatives like the Belt and Road. So on the one hand, there is China's Belt and Road, which makes an outreach to other states by uh, promises infrastructure and eventually constrains them with the infamous debt traps. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, we see the West's Build Back initiative, which advertises itself as a global aid partner that uh, well, it does not supposedly behave like a loan shark that breaks anybody's legs. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but the, the, this is uh, but also 
this is what makes the uh, uh, proposal so interesting is the fact that it, uh, it has many serious flaws and problems. I think um, prime among these is that it's a bit overambitious. It was only just announced and it's attempting to challenge an initiative that's been uh, developing since 2013. It's going to take some time, not to mention the backing of this initiative or this proposal is far more divided than it was uh, with the Belt and Road. I mean, in this case, we have seven, at least seven different countries which have to agree upon a strategy. And at the same time, each of those countries has certain national interests, uh, much of which is to not alienate the Chinese market, which has become so near and dear to us. Uh, but then on the other aspect, on the other side, uh, when we look at strings attached, like uh, debt traps, for instance, mm -hmm. um, the Western approach is one which is coming from this uh, Western ideological position. It, it, it wants to encourage um, ecological and environmental regulations. It wants to uh, encourage transparency, anti-corruption. It wants to um, encourage uh, women's rights and equality. And uh, from the perspective of many of the countries that would be receiving this aid, it might even seem that China's deal looks like it has even less strings attached because there are big cultural and economic um, requirements to receive aid in the first place. Many countries won't qualify. Yep. Uh, so it is contingent on the, the Western liberal values. But then that's not even to mention how Western aid is itself a stale concept and rightly viewed with suspicion giving the colonial track record in the past and how many times uh, the West attempted to civilize someplace and in the end, you know, well, that's an old story. But here we can just look at how Vanderlein tries to play off the initiative as non-threatening. It is for us important to convince our partners with us. The investment comes without strings and attachment um, compared to China. It's about fundamental rights, human values, and democracy. And here it's very clear, here we are systemic rivals without any question. Now, um, what the connectivity initiative is concerned, um, we discussed intensively that it is important to bring forward this connectivity initiative and to make sure that we have the better and the more convincing model. So the mark of moral leadership would be precisely to have the power to legitimize your demands without them actually being perceived as demands. That exactly. is to establish what should be obvious. And that is why the EU sees itself as not making any demands, whereas, as we said, it might not seem that way for the ones receiving this foreign aid. And I think this would be an interesting point to make reference to the philosopher Antonio Gramsci vis-à-vis uh, -vis hegemony, uh, whereby he defines hegemony as this uh, the supremacy of the, the ruling class, which uh, receives implicit or explicit consent from the others who are receiving. And uh, it, is, it is demonstrated as domination or what we might call coercion, 
but more importantly also as an intellectual and uh, moral leadership. Uh -huh. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, right? Intellectual and moral leadership. Yeah, and so far the two main rivals, let's say the West and China, they are fighting within this intellectual moral field mm -hmm. in order to legitimize, of course, their, their way of doing trade and doing uh, politics. But it may very well end in the contingency plan of domination through coercion, that is, uh, military conflict. And we see this brewing in Taiwan, most particularly. So it's a place where the U.S. has uh, definitely won the moral battle, but China does not accept or admit this. And therefore, we see it uh, upping up the ante and uh, uh, being more aggressive militarily. So in all we've said... War would therefore be the result of uh, two factions contesting the sphere of influence. And this is done first by bringing out the symptoms in each other's doctrines. Mm -hmm. uh, they point at each other and say, oh, he's the bully. And the other guy says, oh, no, he's taking advantage of people. And after doing so, they, what actually happens is that they expose this uh, grand symptom, or that's how I would call it, of this uh, ideology of global capital and economic freedom uh, to which they both subscribe. So uh, a full escalation in this sense uh, with regards to warfare would in fact be the result not simply of, uh, you know, the arrogance of one side or another, but in fact, this current ideology reaching its breaking point. Hmm. So uh, what we have here is then not so much a conflict of diverging ideologies as it is often seen, but it, uh, but the evidence of rather an inevitable struggle for primacy within the hegemony of the global market and global capital. This um, and this emphasis we see on trade and trade wars, for instance, is another symptom of this conflict. So whether or not it would erupt into a full-blown war is contingent, but what certainly remains the case is that uh, this world order does not culminate into a finality of world peace built on trade and interdependence, which is how it is generally advertised perceived. So, as a conclusion, the US and China and the EU, uh, they can be regarded as mere factions forming alliances and rivalry with each other, but they still together occupy the space of uh, one ruling class within this global hmm. system. So the dominant ideology of free global market persists irrespective of who occupies the dominant position, whether it's China, the US and so on. So these actors compete for the hegemonic privileges, but actually not for a change in ideology. And this is uh, important because that's how they represent themselves as bringing a change, an ideological change to the system, which would end in justice. So, so in our eyes, uh, from what we've seen so far, trade can serve as the means to achieve a degree of integration that would make this conflict too damaging for those involved. But then again, history teaches us as well uh, that this approach to peace does not always work. All we have to do is look at the First World War. So, yeah, so uh, I'll buy my pair of Chinese shorts to help bring about world, world peace. <laughs> yeah, and, I'll, and I'd like to buy the world an American Coke. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more. I keep it.